Hello, I'm Laura Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's Community Cookbook Shop. Today's guest manages that rare feat of writing books that are loved by both professional and home cooks alike. Molly Stevens is a cooking instructor and food writer who's released just three books in the space of 16 years, but the first two, All About Braising and All About Roasting, won both IACP and James Beard Awards. Her latest book, All About Dinner, brings her instructor's attention to detail to creating simple, delicious weeknight meals. She's in conversation with Seattle-based cooking instructor and broadcaster Nancy Leeson, who I don't think would mind me saying that she is a Molly superfan. Nancy does a much better job with the intro than I can, so I'll let her take things from here. They talked in the Book Larder Kitchen in November 2019. Here's Molly Stevens and All About Dinner. to begin by reading a little something. Molly Stevens is the author of my favorite cookbook, All About Braising. I've never had a better cocoa van in restaurants near or far than those I've braised under her implicit direction. Each time I'm shopping for dinner and see a beautiful set of short ribs, my mind's eye turns that raw beef into Molly's short ribs braised in porter ale with maple rosemary glaze. And almost immediately, I can hear her insisting, I pull the rosemary sprigs from the warm maple syrup while saying, and I quote, lightly run your fingers down the length of the sprigs so you save every drop. She calls her Moroccan chicken with green olives and preserved lemons a Moroccan classic. I call it the most satisfying and elegant company food imaginable. Molly loves chicken thighs almost as much as I do. And because she said so long before this was common knowledge, I no longer rinse chicken before cooking it. I learned that along with how to prepare Brussels sprouts so that my husband will actually eat them from All About Roasting. Her latest cookbook, All About Dinner, takes me into her home kitchen where together we eat simply and stop to smell the carrots. Through the years and through her books, Molly has encouraged me and countless other home cooks to read all about it. She explains exactly what I'm doing wrong when I crack an egg and why I should use my most delicate wooden spoon to stir risotto before switching to a big wooden salad fork so as not to compress the tender grains of rice. Molly assures me that homemade chicken stock is preferable, then insists I should not be too proud to pull out the Swansons. And she explains how a bit of bleach poured into a non-reactive bowl and left overnight will pull the stink of roasted broccoli or fried fish from the air. Molly Stevens is the best gal pal I have never before met. (laughs) The one who joins us here and in our kitchens to talk us off the ledge while we knock out one knockout recipe after another. I want to welcome Molly personally to my favorite bookstore and my favorite city. This is really exciting to me. So unlike a lot of other cookbook authors who I know only from reading their books or following them on social media or watching their cooking videos, I don't feel like I know much about you. I get the sense that you're more of a private person than a lot of other cookbook authors. I don't know whether that's true or not. And that, I think, is part of the delight of All About Dinner, which delves into what you cook often at home. 
But before we get to the book, and given that Thanksgiving is next week, and given that I think you are less reserved than some of the people I might interview, I think we should get to some personal information out on the table right away. (laughs) I'm calling this the quick fire round, and there are no wrong answers, only your answers. You ready? I guess. (laughs) Best add-in for cranberry sauce. Oranges. Stuffing, inside the bird or out? Out. On to gravy. Two questions. Giblets or no giblets? Ah, that's tough. I like giblets, but the family doesn't, so I usually do too. All-purpose flour or Wondra for the gravy? All-purpose. Wondra. Ooh. (laughs) Just because I don't have it. (laughs) Okay, now we're talking turkey. Cheesecloth or get out of here? Get out of here. Light meat or dark meat? Dark meat. Okay, mashed potatoes. Yukon golds or russets? For Thanksgiving, Yukon gold. For every other time, russets. Pie time. All butter crust, shortening, or lard? All butter. Pecan pie or pumpkin? Pecan. Jello mold, yes or no? <laughs> Haven't done one in a long time, but <laughs> sure. Football team? The Buffalo Bills. <laughs> All right, we're done. <laughs> now tell us something you'd like us to know about yourself that we won't read in your official bio. I sleep a lot. <laughs> I didn't used to, and now I sleep a lot. Do you take naps? No, I don't, but I could sleep. I'm a, you know, that whole four to six hour thing that some people talk about, I'm good eight, nine hours, no problem. Yeah, well, I always, say, I always used to say that's why I'm so beautiful, because I always got eight hours of beauty I sleep. Just, I don't say that anymore, because I don't get that much. No, I never used to do it, and now I just, I, if I can be in bed by 9.30, that's a good night. <laughs> so uh, share with us about how you originally hoped to be a writer, and how that changed, and why. I was good at school. But I wasn't, I wasn't a happy adolescent, and I don't know many are, but um, I really lost myself in books. I liked books. I read books as a kid. I loved books. And so got into my head that being a writer was something. And I was good at writing. My, I had teachers that told me I was a good writer. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to be a writer. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a writer, maybe a poet or something. You know? And I was going to be very dramatic. <laughs> and um, I was. And I was also very unhappy. And so I went to college. I got a degree in English literature because I could read books at college. I didn't know. I was so, I was so, um, I paid such little attention that I didn't realize that I studied all these American, took all these American lit classes. I didn't realize until I like halfway through the end of junior year that AMLIT was a degree and English lit was a different degree. And I was matriculating in English lit and I hadn't taken any of it. So I had to spend, I mean, I had to spend the last year, three semesters doing like Chaucer and Shakespeare and all the harder stuff. Anyways. So I thought I'd be a writer, um, but the whole time I was working, you know, my, my jobs were cooking, restaurant work. Uh-huh. So. And you grew up in Buffalo, Buffalo New York. Buffalo Bills, the Bills, of course. So I um, left college and then applied to graduate school because, you know, couldn't find a job. And so I went and got a master's degree in English lit because... <laughs> Makes sense to me. Seemed to work. And and I came from my background, valued education and productivity. And so they didn't think cooking, I I didn't get the message that cooking was an okay thing to do. I didn't come from a restaurant background. I didn't know any chefs. It was expected that I would get a real job. And I tried to get a real job, but I just gravitated back to the kitchen. And I, yeah, I went to, moved to Boston at one point. And I remember my little suitcase my grandmother bought me and somebody bought me a suit. And I went off to Boston to get a real job. And I don't think I ever took the suit out of the suitcase. (laughs) and lived in someone's closet and got a job in a restaurant and just kept doing that and doing that. So it was getting where I I was feeling a lot of disapproval for not 
doing something with my degrees and with my life. From your family? Yes, or? from my family. And I mean, not in a negative way. They just wanted me to be productive and cooking wasn't productive because I wasn't cooking at any high end. I was just cooking at whatever restaurant I could get. And so I just got it into my head. Well, there were two things. I There was a, a loaf of bread that I had never tasted anything like it because I didn't grow up with, you know, our bread came in plastic loaves and, or we bake whole wheat loaves and, you know, but... This was a loaf of French bread. From the Tassalahara cookbook? Yeah. Yeah, we did some of that. Yeah. But I, I was living in Vermont at the time, and I was shopping at the co-op, and I bought this. It was a baguette. And I put it in my car and just was overcome by the smell and by the texture. I, I mean, I never had bread like that. I never had cheese. I mean, I had yellow cheddar. That was what, I mean, we were well fed, but we just didn't have a gourmet ethos. And so I went, you know, like any, I don't know, you're 22, we do these things. And I went, tracked down the baker, and I said, what? You know, and he had been to France and learned how to bake. And and then I happened to meet this other farmer who had been to France and learned how to grow biodynamic. And I was like, well, I'm going to go to France. So I borrowed some money from my father and bought a one-way ticket to Paris, France (laughs) when I was 22. And I hadn't heard of Laverne at the time. I just went. And then while I was there, I met a guy, uh, Robert Noah. Did you know Robert Noah? He was from the Midwest. And I knocked on his door, and he told me about Lavarin. And he said, Lavarin hires, not for pay, but for it's a work-study situation. It was a bilingual cooking school for English speakers to learn French cooking. And he said, you should go there. And I said, okay. So I knocked on their door, and they said, well, you need to speak French. And I said, I don't. And they said, well, go learn how to speak French. So I tried to go learn how to speak French. And then about three weeks later, they called me and said, can you start? And I said, I still don't speak French. I still don't speak French. And they said, that's okay. We need you anyway. So, <laughs> so your lucky break. Yeah, that was my lucky break. Right. It's several lucky breaks. So, but that seemed like such a, a formative and influential place for so many great women cooks. I find that interesting. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about all about dinner. How does it differ from your early books and how is it the same? It's probably easier to explain how it's the same. It's the same in that my recipe writing style is the same. And so when I write a recipe, I'm trying to, I think of myself as a teacher first and a writer second. Um, and so when I write a recipe, I'm trying to put a lot of instruction into the recipes. So each recipe procedure has a head note that will say, saute the onion. The next one will be add the aromatics. Once you've made that recipe one or two times, you can just look at that bold-faced head note and be on your way without having to read the paragraph underneath. But if you've never made it before, there's coaching built in there. And because what I'm trying to do is to teach through recipes, because recipes, once you feel really confident in the kitchen, you are freed from recipes for, I mean, we'll still go back and do a recipe for a new dish, but if it's a dish you make on a regular basis, you can make it without the recipe, or it's the short ribs that you love to make, but you could just glance at it and not have to, because it's really hard to sit there and read a page and cook at the same time. It is. Well, uh, you know, funny you should mention it because I think that to me, that is the great joy of your uh, cookbooks. It's like your recipes are like long form journalism Mm -hmm. for cookbooks and makes Molly's books, in my estimation, so very different Mm. from every other cookbook. And it's why, on the other hand, it takes you, how long did it take you to write these books each? I've written three books in 16 years, so. <laughs> yeah. so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to put a cooking class lesson into my recipes. And for me, a cookbook is more than a collection of recipes. And that can mean a lot of things. And this amazing room is filled with so many different um, ways to solve that. But for me, each recipe is designed to teach you something. Yeah, so teaching people to cook is is fascinating, and there's such a wide range of student abilities and experience. So you've cooked in formal training grounds and in less formal settings. So how does the teaching inform your books 
and you're writing. And do students expect different things from a recipe now, do you think, from when you first started teaching? Has the internet changed the way? That's a really good question. Quicker and quicker and quicker, it seems really? like. I don't know. You know, there's so many recipes. There's just no shortage of recipes out there. And the internet, you know, there's just content is not, there's no shortage of it. It's interesting. And Cynthia, you know, we've been to conferences where like 15 years ago or even longer, they're like the death of the rest of the internet is going to be the end of cookbooks. And oh, you know, and it's not cookbooks keep selling. I mean, I'll sometimes go to the internet if I'm looking for just, I need to answer something or I need a couple ideas for something, mm-hmm. you know, and I have a few websites that, that I'll, I'll look at, but a book brings you something else. Yeah, I think some of it's intangible, but um, a book gives you more, I think more inspiration and more ideas, more information than you can get off the internet. You know, interestingly, so we're sitting in this gorgeous venue it, with you know. all these cookbooks looking right at us and all around us. So many of us rely on your cookbook. So which cookbooks do you rely on the way we rely on yours? Judy Rogers, Uni Cafe Cookbook. Just absolutely. And part of it for me is the writing. It's just, I love that book. I use Suzanne Goins' Sunday Suppers mm-hmm. um, for inspiration quite a bit. I still go back to Richard Olney and I love my James Beard books. I love Deborah Madison's Vegetarian Cooking Every Day. Find it a great resource. And I'm really smitten with the several of the British writers now. I mean, Nigel Slater. There are a few books that when I have come out or I've discovered when I've been working on my book that just stopped me in my tracks. And I was like, I'm done. I can't go on. I just can't. (laughs) There's no way I can like be in the same. And Nigel Slater is one of those writers. When I read Nigel Slater, I just, he stops me in my track. Absolutely. And Diane Henry too. Yeah. When you go about testing your recipes, Were you surprised by the results from any of the testers from All About Dinner, given that these are your tried and true recipes? So speak a little bit about that. I always want my recipe tester to come back and tell me things don't work and they they just don't. And I don't, then I don't trust them. I'm like, I don't trust you. You have to, there has to be something wrong here. (laughs) I really, it's so silly. It's because I've been writing recipes for so long and these are tried and true, but I still, I'm always a little bit doubtful. It's like, come on, you didn't find anything? Really, I was more surprised by how, how well they worked. Huh. Well, that says something about the way you write a recipe, right? You've been doing it long enough. Yeah, I get it. So with All About Braising, it seems that you made a real breakthrough. Will you talk about that time in your life after you wrote it? Mm. Did you have any idea that it was going to strike such a serious chord with home cooks like me? Uh, I still don't understand. (laughs) No, I really still don't understand that. I mean, I, I love that book and I'm super proud of it. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I, when I wrote that book, I was had an incredible opportunity. I had worked on the um, the joy that will no longer that will not be mentioned. It's so funny and all this joy, uh, the, the joy of cooking. The, the 1997 redo is just it's just gone. It's oh, that it's, big famous. Everybody one, did a little bit. Yes, yes that one. Yes, yeah. and I worked on that at the end. I was what section did you work on? Oh boy, I worked on a lot of them. I came in at the end after all the bodies were scattered everywhere. Can, and are, are you folks aware of what we're talking about? Why don't you, um, why don't you explain so, a little bit? So, um, cookbook editor by the name of Maria Guarnaschelli got the rights to redo The Joy of Cooking in the mid-90s. And she had this notion that she was going to get some of the best cookbook authors around the country to contribute to each section. And that's what she did. She spent just enormous amounts of money on doing this book and creating, I think it's a very ambitious and interesting project. And she um, pissed off a lot of people. She pissed off the, the, the family. She pissed off half the writers she worked, that worked for her. She redid everything 16 times. And then again, she might have lost her job over it in some ways at Scribner. And it was a, it was just, I, there was an article about it in like Time magazine. It was a big, 
mess. Yeah, it was a big deal at that time. It was I a big deal. It. She would get, I mean, I'm thinking like James Peterson, Bruce Adels. I mean, I'm trying to think of some of the other people who contributed. Yeah, locally, John Rowley the, yeah. contributed. I know there were other people I knew. They would contribute and then she wouldn't use it or she would, I mean, she just, it was incredible, like a waste of resources. And I came on, I was working at Fine Cooking Magazine. I had written a review of books on preserving jams and jellies and things. And in the head note, I said something about the introduction that my, you know, my mom, my grandmother made jam and jelly or something. So I was at the office of Fine Cooking one day and the phone rang and it was Maria Gornichelli. I'd never heard of Maria Gornichelli. And so I was with Martha Holmberg. And you people might know her daughter, Alex, from yes, television. Yes, that's Maria. Yes. And she, Maria has edited Marcella Hazan, Lynn Rosetta Casper, Rick Bayless. I mean, Julie Sani, the, the list of hits. And so she called me up and I was with Martha and, and I, I said, Maria Gornichelli. And she said, <laughs> tell her you'll call her back because she not because I shouldn't talk to her but you need to know who you're talking mm. to because she she's a powerful person and I was like this little so Maria called me up and she said and she said to me should I know you <laughs> I said I don't know you no but anyway so that started a relationship with her and she and I started working on the joy and I was I clean I was kind of a cleanup person on the yeah so I worked on the meat chapter on the sauce chapter on the jams and jelly chapter on the um I, I did you have any hair left by the time it was over yeah. I bought a new uh living room rug it was it yeah. was it was one of the best paying jobs I've ever had so. <laughs> <laughs> probably the last uh, one of those but when it was all said and done just to answer your question when it was all said and done Maria sat me down and said you should write your own cookbook which is an opportunity that so few people get. And she was very difficult. I mean, she's still around. She's retired, but she was, she was an incredibly difficult person to work with, but she was brilliant. And mm. I have a history of working for difficult, brilliant, <laughs> hard, demanding, particularly women. And, and, and I, I admire that. She didn't need to be my friend. Mm. And it was an incredible opportunity. She dumped in my lap. And so she said, we're not going to sit up. We went to lunch. We're not going to get up from this lunch until we come up with a book topic for you. And I'm like, wow. Right? Whoa. This is the kid who wanted to be a writer, who everybody thought being a cook was a bad idea. And I get to write a cookbook with Maria Gornichelli? I mean, I just, I couldn't believe it. And so I went around and around and around. And as a cooking teacher, I wanted a technique because I didn't, I mean, I wasn't going to write a book about Molly Stevens because nobody knows, you know, I don't have a platform or I certainly didn't then. So I thought, well, I can write about a technique and I can really unpack it. And I loved braising. And at the time, braising is something that restaurant chefs have always known about. Home cooks do it, but they didn't know they were doing it. It was one of those things where it's either a good idea or it's a bad idea. You know, there's a reason nobody's done it. And so I it just was very fortunate in the timing because it was the same. Remember, the New York Times does this A to Z magazine at the beginning of the year. A is for whatever, the, the trends of the year. And the year that book came out, B was for brazing. So I was right. Oh. I was just, I, my, my life has been a, a lot of fortunate things, and that was one of them. And I think it was people were ready to hear about it. I learned so much writing that book. I still saved the early drafts of the manuscript that I submitted to her. She taught me as a writer was, and having had been out of school for so long, I loved that part of school. And so to have someone who, I mean, I don't think editors do this much anymore. I mean, no, they don't. And I haven't had a manuscript edited like that since, but I learned a lot. You won for that book as well as roasting both ICP and James Beard Awards. You won a lot of awards for those books, which then bumps it up even a more. And your, your books are contemporary classics. How do you follow that? I mean, is, are you, you've got, so now your third book's out, right? <clears throat> so what's the kind of pressure is there, if any, from yourself or others to perform 
the way you have. It's part of why it takes me that long to write a book, because when the first book came out, I remember a good friend of mine, Fran McCullough, who's also a cookbook editor, said to me, said, well, you know you need a second book. I'm like, oh, my God, you're kidding me. <laughs> and she said, well, once you have a, you know, to have a second book helps sell the first book. And so sure enough, didn't she say it again when the second book came out, you know, you need a third book. It, it, that's a really hard question, because it's one of the things that anybody here is a writer or has spent any time writing or talking, studying writing, is that the, the worst thing I believe you can do for yourself as a writer is to think about what people are going to say when they read it. Because that, that's a long way from what you're trying to do that day sitting in your office or wherever you sit and write. And so if you're sitting there and the voices in your head are, what are they going to think? I'm stopped dead. I can't. I'm, I'm in a ball on the floor. You know, mm -hmm. I cannot do this. And so it takes a lot of practice to quiet those voices and not think about that. And it was harder for me, I think, with the second book. And one might have mm -hmm. been partly because I was younger and, you know, was it just a fluke thing? I'd like to believe that I don't, I don't care as much with this book. <laughs> oh, I don't want, I hope your publisher doesn't hear you say that. No, no. On the podcast. Right. <laughs> No, I don't mean I don't care, but I'm, I, and I think part of it is age or part of it is I had to quiet those voices with this book. It's still, I mean, I, if I'm stuttering now because I, you know, it's, it's a really hard question. Like, how do I get the opportunity, the right to put my grilled cheese in a cookbook and expect people to care about it? You know, I mean, yeah. really, that, that's really hard for me. It's very hard. Well, so long as you have that nice tomato soup along with it, yeah. that's yeah. in the cookbook. But it is, I, str I struggle against that, and that is why it takes me a long time because yeah. I, I have to, I have to like turn those voices down and, and just, mm -hmm. just write. So, you know, I hate to write. I wrote mm. regularly on deadline for mm. over 20 years. I hate to write, but I've always loved doing the reporting mm. and the interviewing and the research. And you're a food writer. You're a, you're a scholar or a researcher. Which part of building the new book do you like best? I love the research. I love going down rabbit holes and just, I, I if I could tell you how many pages are not in this book about <laughs> things like sumac. I mean, there is an essay on sumac, but the one I wrote is about five times as long. I mean, and essays that just will never make it. Isn't there a magazine that wants it? I've saved it all. <laughs> I mean, you never know. You never know. Um, so I, I do love that part. I love just stumbling on something in a recipe and thinking, I need to find out everything about this. And then it doesn't make it in. But that is my favorite part. The learning. The sure. learning, yeah. Yeah. You've said, and, and I'm quoting here, to really learn how to cook, you've got to learn to stop following recipes. Mm. Will you elaborate on that? Well, it's a funny thing because, you know, I write recipes for a living and I don't follow them very often. But it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying that, you know, sitting in your kitchen, reading something on a screen or on a page and cooking at the same time, that, that's, that's hard to do. And it's stressful. And so a lot of for me, the cooking for me is a very calming activity. It's a very... <laughs> relaxing part of my day. Um, but I realized that for cooking to be a calming activity, you need to have a certain level of competence around it. If you're not having success in the kitchen, then it's stressful. And I think we set ourselves up for stress too, because we decide we're going to make something we've never made before. We invite people over. We don't allow ourselves enough time. I'm stressed out just thinking about that, yeah. right? <laughs> so, but recipes are a way to learn new skills. So it's, it's almost as if one of the things I say in the book is to, to pick a few dishes that you really like and make them over and over again is, you know, I mean, not every day, but just to kind of, to get familiar with them. I, it's, I think a lot about um, how 
easy it is for me as someone who's cooked for a long time for joy mm-hmm. for someone like you who is a professional cook and writer to f- recognize how it's so easy for us but it's not easy for everyone and s- fewer and fewer people are cooking uh, particularly now obviously there are people coming to the store i see them when i'm teaching and i'm so fascinated <laughs> young people they're just like did you read this one oh no check this out yeah. people are just so into it but i think we're in a fine little bubble here and the reality is that a lot of people get on work or school or whatever they have in a given day and they stop at their nearest supermarket and we have so many great ones and buy prepared foods talk about how your new book is encouraging people to stop a little and ways in which it allows us to think you know maybe i actually can make this at home instead of buying it prepared so it's funny the first chapter of the book has uh 15 habits of highly effective cooks is kind of my toolkit and and i i wish that i'd added a habit no when not to cook. I don't, I don't cook every night. We go out, we get takeout sometimes. It's not, you know, it doesn't have to be every night. But first of all, I mean, I believe cooking makes everything better. That's my lens through the world. I mean, I think the world would be a better place if we all cooked more. I mean, it's just but I realize that's my my lens. It's a long time before I realized that not everybody thinks about what they're going to eat before they finish eating what they're eating now. You know, it's like, I just, I just, that, that, I just that's the way my, that's the way I was raised. That's what we do. We do not leave the breakfast table till we know what lunch is going to be. And we don't leave lunch until we know where dinner's going to be. And that's just who we are. So, you know, if you don't want to cook, I think it's really hard to learn how to cook. You don't need cooking, you know, you don't feel, but if you want to, and so I, you know, I, I think about, you know, I have lots of nieces and nephews who are in that kind of age group. And it's interesting now because the sort of fluency in ingredients and dishes and global cuisine now that some of, some of the younger people have is amazing how much they know about food at, on one level, whether they've seen it on television or picked it up through eating out, but they don't have the depth of knowledge. So how to do it. So, and that's why I really wanted simpler recipes in this book, because I think, back to what I was saying before, is I think we set ourselves up by choosing something that's too difficult, right? But mm-hmm. what if it's just a simple pot of soup? And then, you know, you buy a good loaf of bread. Or you take a piece of nice bread and toast it and put some really fresh ricotta on it and a little bit of olive oil and some salt and pepper. I mean, that's a really delicious little thing. So it's like little small, simple things like that. And I think you save money and it's just so much healthier too. Yeah, there is cook. that. What's your home kitchen like? It's not very big. It's kind of a galley kitchen. It's pretty simple. It's got a lot of windows um, and a lot of counter space. My husband built, designed to build the house. That it were, I'm on, in the woods in Vermont, and everybody said, you need your sink under the windows. Because I said, I don't want my sink under the windows. I'm like, I'm not going to be standing there doing dishes all the time. Like, I want my counters under the windows. So I have this long stretch of counter under the window. That was windows, brilliant. Which I just love. And then the sink is under some cabinets. There aren't a lot of overhead cabinets because I don't like that. But it's, it's, um, it's just a straight up. Uh, I have two. I have a second oven. When I was writing the roasting book, I decided the reason I wasn't getting anywhere was because I only had one oven. <laughs> and there was something to that. It was also just an excuse for not making much progress, but it really did. It really did have a set help to have a second oven because um, one is a gas oven and one is an electric conduction oven, and I could play around and learn different things that way. Speaking of kitchen appliances and gadgets, give us some you can't live without it. I'm so pathetic when it no, comes to I this. No, but I mean, no, I have. I'm serious. I have my mother's Cuisinart. 
food processor. Yeah, keep it, by it the was, way. I know. It was a first generation. Right. I've replaced the bowl, whatever, but that's it. I had my grandmother's Osterizer blender. I'm not kidding you. I would like a new blender, but... Um, <laughs> Just put it out there, right? I have, a, you know, I have a mortar and pestle. I have a KitchenAid mixer, which um, I love. Is it old? Eh, it's not that old. It's probably, well, yeah, for me, it's probably 15, 20 years, yeah. Okay, so I have to ask, <laughs> Instant Pot. I've never used one. <gasps> I know. I really? Need, you? So, yeah, I, I it took me many yeah. years yeah. to decide that I needed one. Or not many, because they haven't been out that long. But it right. took me a long, you know, yeah. a couple of years. Everybody was talking about yeah. them, and I did not one. I didn't need it. I have a rice cooker, and I love it. Yeah. I have a pressure cooker and a slow cooker that I never use. So why would I even need it? But then um, I read the article at the, about the butter chicken lady in The New Yorker, right. and I thought, all right, The New Yorker's talking about it. I, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to get one. And I did, and that was the first recipe I made, the Indian butter chicken. It was fabulous. And all I can say is if someone like you make, make stock, I bet you do all mm -hmm. the time. If you only use it for stock, yeah, yeah. it's worth having. Yeah. yeah. I have a Plus, waffle maker. Do you, do you use it? They came from a garage sale right? in college and the cord doesn't match, but I, I use it. I use it. Yeah, it's pretty funny. So I have a little something for you, Molly, and I want you to open it. Harriet the Spy. And there's a reason why I brought you Harriet the Spy, which, by the way, is also one of my childhood favorite books. Absolutely. Um, and you tell the story about your family of origin in the introduction to All About Braising. I'd love for you to recount that story, if you can, that has to do with I this. was Harriet the Spy. <laughs> I, I, I mentioned earlier how I would lose myself in books. And it's funny thinking about this because at the same time, education was valued. There was a sense we had to be productive. So sitting on the couch reading a book wasn't really, you know, have you done your chores? Have you helped the neighbor? Have you, you know, what? being of service was, was a big part of growing up. And so um, I fell in love with Harriet the Spy when I was a little kid. And I was a tomboy and I dressed like her and I had notebooks and I had little. And I ran around the neighborhood and climbed roofs and spied on people. I had a little tape recorder and I recorded my family. Um, and some of them, I record myself sometimes too. Those are super embarrassing. But I um, found I found a tape when I was writing the brazing book. I, my sister had said, come get your junk out of my attic or something. And so I, there was this cassette tape that I had recorded in, it was in high school. My whole family, there were four of us. Um, and my mom and dad were at the dining room table on a weeknight in high school. And it just blew my mind to hear that because it brought everything back because we did that every night. We sat at the dining room table every night and my father would, even if he was going back to work, I mean, he worked, he, he was gone a lot, but we would sit there and it was, I, I tell the story in the Brazing book, my sister was practicing a cheer. She's like, nah, 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 nah. and then, you know, my older brother's complaining because he can't get his driver's license and, you know, my mother's, being cheerful and it's all it's just insanity but it, and we're in the dining room too I remember we, we would you're not around the kitchen table we would go into the dining room and it was you know past the oh and the other thing about dinner is every dinner was a, a lesson in manners my father had all these little signals that he would do it was like <laughs> like like really like what this is get your elbows off the table this is scra scra scratching <laughs> your breast no your lapel oh your, your lapel. lapel because he had a uh, aunt or somebody who had a hat pin and they would stab <laughs> So that was a generation before us, so we weren't getting stabbed. But all he had to do was do this, and you, your elbows would snap back. This what is obviously, happened if you didn't? If you did. 
Oh. <laughs> no, there, my father was incredible. Like, he was a gentle guy, but he commanded. You did what he told you to do. So the, the point of your story um, in the intro to that first book is that sitting around the table was important. Talking while you were eating was mm-hmm. important. Conversation, sharing, all that cliched stuff. And I, I, I'm curious to know how you feel about that now, you know, 15, 20 years later. How does that manifest itself in, in, in how you see people eating or dining these days? I only know me. I mean, I only know what my way through our days, our lives are. And for me, it's the, it's the table. And that's, that's where I go. And I'm fortunate because I come from a family of good cooks on both sides. And we don't, if we get together, that's what we do. It's funny. I'm just, you know, we're all talking about Thanksgiving's coming up and we will stay home for Thanksgiving. And then, uh, I mean, we'll be with family at Thanksgiving and then we're going somewhere else. Someone's like, well, we should all go out to dinner. I'm like, I'll go out for dinner. There's like too many of us, you know, and it's just, but nobody really wants to go out for dinner. Yeah. I mean, I find that I don't know if it's I'm older now and when I was younger, I just wanted to go out to eat all the time. But I find that we're good cooks as well. And when we entertain our friends, we just enjoy ourselves so so much more around the relaxed table than we do in a busy restaurant, which, by the way, you know, of course, I love restaurants. We all we all do. And um, and we want them to be there and succeed. But I find that 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 entertaining is done so much uh, with so much more grace and so much more fun and comfort at home. And that's where books like yours come in. Thank you so much. Thanks, Molly. Thank you to Molly Stevens for visiting us in Seattle, to Nancy Leeson for leading the discussion, and to W.W. Norton Publishing. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of All About Dinner and any other books featured on Booklarder Podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code PODCAST at checkout. We have signed copies of All About Dinner and many other books that you've heard on the podcast, so be sure to get one of those while they last. And if you visit us in the shop, just mention that you heard about a book on the podcast for 10% off in-store as well. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard here, leave us a rating and review to help others find the podcast. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit booklarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, visit us at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Laura Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.